The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit spackling your dartboard wall and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 375 with guest Steve Teixeira, recorded live Tuesday, August 19th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, if at first you don't succeed, don't try skydiving, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin here. Richard is still climbing Mount Everest and will be back in a couple of weeks, but he'll be here for the interview in just a few minutes. Uh, guess what? We're just a day late this week, so we're going to publish on Wednesday and Friday. No big deal. Had a few glitches to work around, but uh, I do want to announce the winner of this week's uh, .NET Rocks Barcelona contest, and the winner is Kevin Griffin. Kevin, congratulations. He's from Virginia Beach, Virginia. The question last week was, what was the name of the bar where Carl and Richard uh, did the .NET Rocks Live from DevLink in Tennessee? And the, the name of the bar wasn't the Doubletree Bar, like a lot of put it. Yes, it was the Doubletree Bar. It was in the Doubletree Hotel, but that's not the name of the bar. name of the bar was Fanatics. So congratulations to you, Kevin. You were randomly picked from all the people who got the uh, question right. This week's question is, and I quote, uh, it's a multiple choice question. What was Brian Noyes' status at Microsoft during the development of Prism? Was he A, a vendor, B, a consultant, or C, a blue badge. If you think you know the answer, go to .NET Rocks.com slash Barcelona and uh, enter that in, and you could win a fabulous Tom Bin brain bag. The Tom Bin brain bag has been a wonderful companion for me and for Richard and lots of other .NET Rocks listeners. 
Uh, it's made of some space-age material that never rips or tears, and it's just the best laptop bag in the world. You could have one of your very own. And if you do win the brain bag next week or any of the next seven weeks, you'll be in the running to win the grand prize, which is an all-expense-paid asterisk uh, trip to Barcelona, Spain for Tech Ed 2008 uh, developer in Barcelona, either this year or next year. TechEd Developer is happening in Barcelona, Spain, November 10th through the 14th. And the asterisk is we will fly you there, we will pay for your hotel, and we will pay for your ticket. All you need to do is participate in the contest. It's easy, it's free, you don't have to be from Europe to win, and uh, good luck. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, of course, is our friends at Infusion in New York City. Very creative, very interesting uh, people down there in New York. Greg Brill is looking for people to join his team. Of course, they're doing a lot of SharePoint. They're doing a lot of financial software. They're doing WPF. They're doing Surface. They have positions in Dubai. And uh, if you want to do any of that stuff, uh, please send an email to me at carl at franklins.net. I will forward your request on to the guys in Infusion. And with that, let's introduce our guest. Steve Teixeira is the product unit manager for the Parallel Development Tools team within Developer Division's Parallel Computing Platform organization. The Parallel Development Tools team is responsible for envisioning, incubating, and shipping the tools needed by software developers to build applications that fully leverage multi- and many-core CPUs. Previously, Steve was the group program manager for the Microsoft Visual C++ team, where he was responsible for product strategy, definition, development process, and customer interaction. Steve has a broad base of management and hands-on experience in software development and IT. Prior to joining Microsoft, he was founder and CTO of Falafel Software, a consultancy specializing in .NET. That's our friend Lino, Lino yes. Tadros out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, Lino and I are, are good old buddies. He's awesome. Wow. we got to have him on the show, Richard. Yeah, we'll get Lino on, no doubt. Oh, yeah. If you need the inside track, let me know. I know, his, uh, I know all the levers to pull with Lino. <laughs> it involves food. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, Steve has also held positions as Director of Product Architecture at Zone Labs. We'll have to talk about that. A leader mm -hmm. in Internet Security, CTO of ThinSpace, a mobile wireless software company, and CTO of Full Moon Interactive, a full-service e-business builder. As a research and development engineer at Borland, Steve was instrumental in the design and development of Delphi and C++ Builder. Uh, Steve is the best-selling author of five award-winning books and numerous magazine articles on software development, and his writings are distributed worldwide in more than a dozen languages. He's also a frequent speaker at industry conferences and events worldwide. Welcome, Steve Teixeira. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you. Where'd you get that, that material? That's brilliant. That's uh, You wrote that, actually. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sir, you get around. I was just thinking, boy, lots of little companies, but also Borland and now, of course, Microsoft. That, that's a, quite a diversity of uh, work experience. Yeah, well, I, I've definitely got dev tools in my blood. No kidding. Um, yeah, Borland, Borland was one of the first experiences. I actually worked for a smaller company right out of college. Uh, that did terminal emulation, which is, I, I don't think anybody uses those two words together anymore. I know but back all about in the it. day, it was, 
you know, VT100 and Tektronics and all that kind of stuff. We did that. And then right after that, I, I worked at Borland for, for about five years working on uh, DevTools, which was a great experience. And then, of course, I was in the Valley, so I had to, you know, working in the Valley is like uh, dining at a smorgasbord or something where you can go sample a little of this and a little of that. And so <laughs> I certainly availed myself of that during my time in the Valley. Well, your time at Borland on Delphi and stuff certainly um, explains Le- the connection with Lino and Falafel Software. He was a Borland guy, too. You guys must have worked together there. We did, in fact. So, uh, little little software archaeology here. <laughs> um, at the time when Anders, uh, right around the time Anders left Borland, Anders Heilsberg left Borland for Microsoft, uh, you know, a few months before that, uh, Lino and I had both left the developer support group at Borland and went to go work in R&D, and we were all stoked because we were going to get to work with Anders. And, of course, six months later, Anders was, uh, you know, on to, on to New Horizons. Uh, but Lino and I and a couple of other guys were actually the team that delivered all the ActiveX and Com stuff in Delphi 3. Sweet. Wow. And so Lino was my, my QA guy, actually, and, and got me into trouble uh, uh, almost on a daily basis with our boss for, you know, some bug or other in the code. Yeah. Uh, but it turned out okay. I, the, the Delphi 3 was a great product. Yeah. And uh, so Zone Labs, that's a zone alarm, right? The, the Internet firewall, one of the first really successful firewalls. That's Software right. And, and actually, so uh, Borland Connections Everywhere, Zone Labs was founded by a couple of guys, Gregor Freund and Conrad Herman. Uh, I worked with Conrad quite a bit at Borland. Conrad was another C++ and Delphi guy. Um, Gregor was actually an early Borlander. I think he was one of the founders of Borland Europe. And then he was like this, you know, super scary, low-level kernel hacker guy. <laughs> um, and those guys collaborated. Uh, first, they went to... Uh, I think it was uh, Starfish, and they were working with FleepCon at Starfish, and then they broke off and did Zone Labs. Uh, but they started figuring out, hey, we can do this real-time network monitoring stuff. And then as they got more into it, they started learning, well, wow, we, can't, we can do more than monitoring. We could actually do filtering and blocking. And um, that ultimately evolved into, into Zone Alarm. The cool thing about Zone Alarm was was this idea of taking this just super geeky propeller head, you know, personal firewall port protocol, yeah. um, you know, stateful packet inspection thing, and making it a piece of software my grandmother can run on her machine. Yeah, except when she wants to print something. Yeah, you don't want to print. Yeah, come on. There's some reasonable expectations here. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons I took it off when I was when I first put it. Now, granted, this was a long time ago. Yeah. Probably like version one or maybe even a beta. And I, I just I couldn't print with the thing on and couldn't figure out how to disable it. You know, ultimately, it was it had a great run. It was we had our bugs, you know, printing and whatnot. Um, but ultimately, we had an Achilles heel that um, we hadn't managed to solve up until the time the company was was acquired by Checkpoint. And the Achilles heel I always felt was that we were asking these questions that our users were not equipped to answer. Right? You know, do you trust ServiceHost.exe? Well, hell, I don't yeah, know. Right. Do I? <laughs> you let me know. Well, these are those, um, and those are the dialogues that mostly people look for. the make this go away button. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not actually trying to answer anything. Yeah, go away faster. Go away faster. Those should right. be the two buttons. What? What, do you, what? This is Mark Miller's line. What do most people do when confronted with a large dialogue full of text? They press. I agree. Oh, I agree. That's yeah. right. Okay. Mark Miller, another Delphi guy, by the way. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. That's where we, I, I met both Lino and Miller when they were still uh, uh, Delphi folks. 
uh, over in Amsterdam at the SDC conference. Sure, yeah, I've, I've done that conference a couple of times. Yeah. Way back when they still did Delphi. I don't think they do anymore, but... Yeah, probably not. <laughs> do. Although I have my Delphi 1.0 box on my shelf here at Microsoft, just so people know that I keep it real. Awesome. Yes. I remember where I came from. Yeah, that's right. So, Mark Miller, next time you talk to him, you have to ask him about the Simpsons, uh, the, oh, the mock it. Simpsons episode we did where I did the voices for him. I saw awesome. it. I saw it. It was great. I mean, I didn't <laughs> understand it because it was all inside jokes about Borland executives and stuff. But That's right. But I thought it was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. You did I, the voices was, uh, for that? I did many of the voices. That's right. Very Among good. my many talents is I can, I can do a good Monty Burns. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on voices, because... <laughs> oh, man, we are never getting to parallel computing Yeah, here. we're never going to hit parallel computing. <laughs> well, you That'd said parallel close. like 12 times in the introduction, so I figured we were covered for at least 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> How do you find yourself in the, the parallel developer tools division? Like, what? That's an interesting change with all these different experiences. Well, let's see. So when we're coming to Microsoft, I went to the Visual C++ team. Um, and it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm still... It's still weird that I ended up there. I uh, I had a choice. I had two offers when I came to Microsoft. I could go work on uh, Visual C++, or I could go work on this weird technology coming out of WPF that was WPFE that eventually... That'll never go of, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, what were they thinking? <laughs> eventually, it was this little thing that's displaying, like, all the Olympics um, yeah. <laughs> called Silverlight. It'll never work. So, you know, you can never accuse me of making the right decisions uh, from a career standpoint. But yeah, <laughs> actually, I was, I was really happy. Um, I, what it came down to is I really liked the guy I was going to work for in Visual C++, a guy named David Burgraff, who was the pump for that group. And so I'm happy I did it, had the opportunity to kind of um, learn a lot about how Microsoft works and, and running things um, you know, making things happen within the company. Um, of course, my background at Borland made me really well-suited to come right in and work on developer tools. Um, I didn't really have a graphics background or anything like that, so I, I don't know if I would have had as much to offer, uh, you know, the, that, that weird Silverlight group that um, seems to have done well for themselves lately. Um, so, so I'm happy with the decision I made. After, uh, you know, a couple years, little, almost three years on the C++ group, um, you know, I was I was looking at okay, well, what else is going on inside of Microsoft? What other opportunities are out there? Um, you know, maybe uh, running a slightly more substantial team at Microsoft. We divide uh, engineering into three disciplines: development, testing, and program management. So I was running the program management organization in Visual C++. Um, but of course, in my background, I had been a dev. I had you know done test work, and so I was interested in in uh, perhaps a more substantial role that. Uh, you know, had me uh, had me overseeing a little bit more, a um, little bit more functional responsibility, and so I started looking at what was out there. I knew a lot of people were gravitating toward this parallel computing thing. It seemed very interesting. Um, even when I was in the C++ group, I as as I went around talked to customers. You know, what were the big things that they were worried about? Um, all of them were worried about parallel computing. It was like of the top ten things, five of them had to do with parallel computing, and so I knew based on the imperial customer data that I gathered myself, like, this is what, this is what the industry really cares about. Sure. Then if you, you kind of cross-tab that with what's going on in the hardware business, like, well, nobody's building these single-core things anymore. They're just getting more and more parallel. Mm. This is a cool space. This is fun. And so it so happens that uh, the general manager in this group, Lynn Hill, 
uh, had an opening for a pump for her tools group, and I said, well, you know, I've, I've done dev tools before. Um, why don't you talk to me? And, and she did, and it kind of worked out. When it strikes me, you're sitting at the crux of the challenge of parallel computing, because parallel computing has been around for years and years. Yes. But we're now talking about every desktop with multiple cores and every program having really needing to ultimately take advantage of that. Yes. And it's hard. Parallel programming <laughs> really is hard. hard. It's really and hard. It's, this get, is... it's getting easier, but it's still hard. And it's really not the tools. It's the, it's to, I, you, you mind if I swear? We'll bleep it. I, it, I hope you do. I would feel much closer to you if you, if you dropped an F-bomb on it's me. It's a big mind f***. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Because it's a totally different way to think about the problem. And the tools we've had up till now aren't even close to what we need. Yeah, you know, this is um, this is kind of the, the IT industry equivalent of, you know, Patton's Third Army pivoting 90 degrees and, and you know, going a couple hundred miles in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, it, it requires everybody to change the way they're doing business. And I would say that uh, the hardware companies have already done it. Yeah. You know, they retooled, they're, they're doing their thing, um, and they're trying to kind of backfill that. You see, you see Intel, for example, doing a lot of work in the software space with TBB, with OpenMP, a lot of work in their compiler. Now you see Apple Computer with OpenCL um, and, and the work they're doing on LLVM and Grand Central. So uh, everybody... Um, at the lowest level in the stack is really uh, changing the way they do business. Of course, you see Microsoft. It's not just the parallel computing team here. We've got the HPC team. We've got folks we're working with in Windows and Office. We have folks we're working with in robotics that are doing the CCR. So there's a lot of momentum. Uh, the Connected Systems Division, which does a lot of the service-oriented um, type software development technology. And so a lot's happening inside of Microsoft. But, you know, beyond those players, there's a, there's a big, giant industry that still needs to be moved as well. All of the ISVs, SIs, VARs. Um, and to do that, they really need enabling technology so that you don't have to be a freaking rocket scientist right. to make parallel computing work. Because you're right, we've been doing it um, as an industry, you know, particularly in academia and, uh, you know, government uh, institutions. It's been happening for, for years and years and years. Uh, but it's never been something approachable by your sort of quote unquote everyman developer. And it turns out that every man's application is going to need to be parallelized at some point. Yes, um, we, we haven't really talked about the the um, parallel computing extensions, uh, or what do we call them? The the .NET parallel extensions. For the yeah, .NET parallel framework. extensions to the .NET framework. We haven't talked about that since uh, we interviewed Stephen Taub in April, uh, yes. show 331. So that's been quite a while. Uh, and it was nascent at that time. It, was, it wasn't even really out. It was just about to come out, I think. Yeah, so since the last conversation, we did another CTP version, a community technology preview that was released in June. Um, not a ton new in terms of functionality compared to the previous CTP, although we had, you know, similar, similar themes, a couple different variations on the themes. Um, but, uh, you know, includes TPL and PLink and some uh, concurrent data structures that you can use to construct applications. Um, and then you'll see, you know, as we look toward future either CTPs or betas of, of Visual Studio, um, you know, obviously this is going to be something that's going to appear with that technology as well. For those who didn't hear that and uh, didn't hear that episode and really don't know what we're talking about, let's just give a elevator speech about what the parallel extensions are. Okay, yeah. 
So I think of it as three things. Um, one is uh, a way to make uh, to make data parallelism really easy. So Link, one of the really fantastic features in yeah. .NET today, this idea that you can uh, bring sort of SQL-like concepts to uh, to .NET languages and be able to ex- you know express and manipulate data. Um, using these SQL-like constructs from within, say, C-sharp, for example. Um, what we've done is, is added some uh, additional syntactic sugar where you can take a link expression and say dot as parallel. And, yeah. and that's literally all you have to do to it. And you can, uh, you can then get our uh, runtime invoked such that uh, it will execute portions, you know, bifurcate or, or uh, chunk up that link query into multiple operations, run those on multiple cores, and be able to essentially return you an answer much, much faster. Now, this is really probably most helpful when you're doing a query against a SQL server or some other server somewhere that's fairly long running, isn't that probably? Well, good? it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's actually least helpful when you run it against SQL. Really? Um, in, in fact, we don't we don't go parallel at all with SQL because SQL is already very very good at that. Yeah, um, so SQL is one right. of those examples where we have you know black robed uh, gurus that can you know with long beards that can bang out massively awesomely parallel code without the help of people like us building programming models. They can do it all so you know, I, in I, assembly code by hand. True. Um, so you just give them the SQL string, and, and they parallelize it. Where we're good is, uh, you know, if you're doing link to objects, for example, where you have the data locally as objects or XML data, then we can uh, party locally on that data using parallel link. And I guess it begs the question, why do you have that much data locally <laughs> that you need parallelism? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, even if it's not a lot of let's say you just have a few megabytes of data, um, you know, it's it's worth your time to type the par- the characters dot as parallel to get an answer in 0.5 seconds instead of 5 seconds. I suppose you're right. Well, and, and I'm just thinking when you talk about navigating through a bunch of objects, so much of the processing time is just the negotiation of the infrastructure of the object itself. It's not the data that's the problem. So there's no question if I've got the cores to do it, that running them simultaneously will help. Yes. And then that also leads to, well, you know, ultimately we should probably just parallelize it automatically if if we find that the hardware resources are there. And yeah. ultimately that's probably something we'll do, although I don't know if that's something we'll do the first, you know, the first time out of the gate. Um, the other thing that we're providing in the uh, parallel extensions to the .NET library is something called Task Parallel Library, TPL. Um, and what this is is the collection of um, extensions to the uh, to the .NET languages, um, typically in the form of Lambda expressions that give you a syntactic feel that you have language integrated parallelism. So, for example, you could say parallel dot four or parallel dot four each, and you could use this as a means to iterate over uh, you know some array or, or uh, perform some operation multiple times, hmm. um, and then underneath the hood, the runtime will automatically chunk up each iteration of those things. Schedule them on our on our scheduler, and you'll be able to you know if you've got a four cores, you should in some cases see something close to linear um, you know linear performance increases. You know you'll get you'll get that loop accomplished uh, somewhere around four times quicker. That's great. And then finally, something called concurrency data structure CDS, which is kind of your your grab bag of data structures of like you know lightly locked or lock free data structures that can be used to construct parallel applications that operate efficiently. So those that's the trifecta of of feature categories that you'll find in parallel extensions to the .NET framework. When we think about performance bottlenecks in applications that these 
new 80 core machines are going to be, uh, you know, tackling. Yeah, we think they're hard. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it really comes down to just the amount of data that needs to be processed? Um, is that really the thing that is going to scale the most in an application going it, forward? It really depends. This is actually an area that, that my team specifically is working on, um, which is this idea of extending Visual Studio's profiler technology to incorporate um, profiling parallel applications and finding the bottlenecks in parallel applications. Mm. Um, so it can be a number of things. And I should probably rewind just a little bit um, to talk about um, you know, because we've talked about, okay, well, we have these applications and we want them to run well on parallel hardware. Um, you know, there's this, uh, you run up against this this notion of Amdahl's law, which, uh, you know, smart guy in the past, uh, Amdahl said that, you know, you can think of an application as a collection of sequential and parallel operations. Um, even if you had perfect parallelism, the only thing that you can parallelize are those operations that are that are inherently parallelizable. Right. Um, you can never shrink the the sequential operations. So if you extend that concept to something like, say, uh, Microsoft Word, uh, you're never going to parallelize so much that you can type a document faster. Sure. <laughs> you know, the sequential <laughs> operation is how long it takes me to type those characters into the word processor. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, some years later, a guy named Gustafsson came around with his own law and said, well, yeah, Amdahl's law is true, but what you really need to think about, you don't think about the work, uh, you know, the amount of work you do as the fixed thing. You think about the amount of, basically, the amount of time you have to interact with the user as a fixed thing. You know, if I'm going to sit down, it's going to take me 15 minutes to, to interact and, and build this document. That's really the, the thing that's fixed. And if I have enough hardware resources, I can do more in that same amount of time. And so when we think about, you know, existing software, the way I think about it is we're only going to get so far with existing software. There's some low-hanging fruit. We'll be able to make some things better. Um, there's some underlying things such that, you know, for loops or uh, searches or sorts or those kind of core things that we can make faster with parallelism. But by and large, I, you know, I don't know what the number is. Things will get, what, 30% better, 50% yeah. better? I don't know. Yeah. It's something like that, though. Um, the way we think about the problem in the parallel computing platform organization is we're trying to enable this, this world where people can build new kinds of experiences with the hardware resources. Um, so really going well beyond the, the keyboard and mouse and, and monitor that we know and love today and figuring out, well, how can we, you know, these experiences that used to be, um, you know, crazy high-performance computing, go mm. make this thing churn on a cluster for three days and then give me an answer back type of scenarios, <laughs> how can we make these real-time things? And that's how we're thinking about how we want to spend our 80 cores or 1,000 cores or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And then so fast forward to your question about, about you know, performance problems. With today's software, you know, it's all about uh, typically lock contention is, mm -hmm. is one of the major problems that we see, that you've got some piece of shared data um, that you're doing, you know, you're doing the quote-unquote right thing by locking around the shared data so that you don't have multiple threads racing and stepping on it. But as you scale, you find that that doesn't scale beyond a handful of cores yeah. um, before everybody's waiting at that lock. Mm. Well, and competing for different locks, and you end up deadlocking. I mean, that's the <laughs> yeah, exactly. trade-off race-free for deadlock-prone. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. And so, you've, you know, there are a couple, couple things we can do. Um, one of the more promising th- directions that we're looking at is how can we devise and encourage new programming models that just uh, either discourage or disallow shared data or immutable data? Yeah. Um, if you can't share it and you, or you can't write to it once it's been written to once, um, then you don't need to lock it. The functional uh, languages certainly took an interesting approach to that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of the, the poster children for data immutability. Mm. Um, and then we're looking at some models that are kind of um, asynchronous agents that communicate over message channels as a, as a means for isolation so that they can share data, but the only way they share it is by passing messages to one another so that the, you mm. know, the physical memory is never shared between two agents. Kind of like a SQL server. Yeah, very much way. so. Yeah, very much so. And so we think that, you know, if you, if you look at this in the context of a couple of threads, um, things like functional programming or asynchronous agents with messaging look kind of inefficient. But if you think about it in the context of 80 threads or, yeah. you know, 80 cores or whatever, um, then you start to think about, wow, my software really, really scales uh, basically nearly infinitely with the hardware instead of being limited by by these shared memory locks. You know, one, one thing, talking about SQL Server, it's a, it's a classic thing that uh, when you start working with threads and you start experimenting with how I can parallelize things, you quickly realize that disk access is not really parallelizable because it, <laughs> the disk is so much slower than your code. There's really, no, there's really no advantage to doing that. If you're like writing a long file or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple things we think about um, in the I/O space. One is overlapping the I/O with useful work. Yeah. So you know, identify those opportunities where you know you can look at a profiler dump and go, "Wow, you're just for this amount of time, you're just sitting there doing I/O and nothing else useful." Sure. Is there an opportunity to overlap it with useful work? Um, the other thing, of course, is that we can't we can't evolve as an industry to a place where we build these machines with like huge biceps and skinny little legs and necks. <laughs> you know, they can't have massive cores and then have these really weak IO and memory subsystems. Right. Um, and so we definitely need balanced systems to emerge. And there's a lot of work going on in that space. I would say uh, certainly for the time being, uh, CPUs look like the beefy biceps um, but over time, you know, we need <laughs> we need more balanced well, muscles across the system. Well, I think of flash memory as being a really disruptive technology to guys like you um, to, that are working on like, you know, parallel stuff. Because are not just guys like you, but and programmers in general, because the, yeah. the big bottleneck, the disk, suddenly seems to be not there. And you know, and of course, it's not going to be ridiculously fast, but it's going to get ridiculously fast. Absolutely. Not only ridiculously fast, but it has the potential to be parallelized. Absolutely. Um, you know, in a way that it's very difficult when you've got a physical platter with a physical head. Um, you know, you can only have so many platters and heads. Right. Um, but when you look at, um, you know, when you look at flash memory and they can parallelize it, they can increase the throughput. Right. It, you know, I.O. becomes a different ballgame at that sure. point, definitely. And programming, certainly, I mean, the programming models that the, the pro- practices and habits that we had, just that's going to be a different day. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just, before this call, I was just in a meeting um, 
where we were talking about the importance of, of students graduating from university with a knowledge of how to do parallel programming. Mm. Um, and, you know, right now, very few do. I mean, certainly you can find folks that come out of PhD programs and whatnot that have done work in this space. Um, but by and large, people graduate from schools, computer science schools today, not really understanding uh, anything beyond the most basic concepts of parallel programming. And so that's definitely... Um, you know, that's definitely something that we're motivated to change at Microsoft and other leaders in the industry. You know, how can we get schools engaged, not just in our new programming models, but just caring about parallelism in general and machine architecture in general. And um, it's, uh, again, it's this, you know, 90-degree turn that the industry has to pull in order to, uh, to take on this new challenge. And we've already seen, so, I mean, certainly we've got solutions on the processor side, and I've seen interesting developments on the memory side with the NUMA architectures where chunks of memory are clustered around specific processors and things. Mm-hmm. The idea of a parallel storage, actually, I think uh, iSCSI may be the solution to that, that we simply transport that as network traffic and never think about it uh, uh, from a DMA point of view at all. Well, Richard, you just rattle off some IT terms that our listeners might not be familiar with. Why don't you define iSCSI? Well, I, yeah, iSCSI is a drive architecture based on TCPIP. So if we can, but that means if we're really going to take advantage of that, we need to parallelize the networking stack efficiently too. And mm-hmm. that's another area where I've certainly seen uh, operating systems, and I'm not naming any that start with V, that have trouble <laughs> with paralleling uh, networking. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some interesting research done in this space where, uh, you know, looking at, say, 1,000-core thousand core machines and what do you do with the network stack? Do you, um, do you run lots of them? Do you run a shared one? How do you approach that problem? And um, there, there's certainly interesting work going on in this space that, that I think over the next couple of years we'll start to see this stuff trickle down into, um, into industry and into our everyday lives. But it's clear, you know, if you look at this whole thing as, as a general – um, a general this general problem of IO. Um, it's clear that there there are a number of solutions that are just almost there, um, and as soon as they as soon as they get there, um, the, you know the way I see it is the work we're doing becomes all that much more important. Absolutely, um, the systems are just that much faster, uh, that much more capable of of you know concurrent uh, executing concurrent instruction sets and doing concurrent IO and therefore we need the programming models and we need the tools to be able to cope with that because you know by golly it's hard mm. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor Telerik and uh, let you know that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik you know summer is in full swing now and you're probably lying on the beach but our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys... 
Say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. So I guess the, you know, you've already hinted at this, that we could see a time where the option to go parallel is automatic in Link. Sure. Could we see all of .NET just be naturally parallel? Well, so this is, you know, now we're getting to the area of, of just Steve wildly speculating. <laughs> Which is fine. We like that. As we opposed like that. to me, you know, announcing any particular plans. But if I were to wildly speculate, I would say, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, that's the only way, you know, if we project ourselves several years down the road, that's the only way that, that we're going to be able to scale with, you know, whatever the, the hardware of the, of the day is. Um, and so, you know, when we write a program... For years, you know, for whatever, 30 years when we wrote programs, we kind of felt really secure that they would run better. The thing we wrote today would run better on next year's machine and even better on the machine the year after that. Um, and in fact, we're in a day now where that's no longer true. The software I write today will perform pretty much about as well on tomorrow's machine or next year's machine or whatever uh, because I'm writing sequential code today by and large. Um, and to really unlock and, and, and break through that, that performance wall, we need to, we need for the software or, or the software with the aid of, of the operating system or some core platform technology to dynamically understand the hardware resources available. Uh, you know, whether it's multi-core CPU or some kind of crazy heterogeneous architecture with a general purpose GPU or some set of them, you know, basically understand holistically what the hardware picture looks like and then being able to uh, optimize the software dynamically to take advantage of the hardware on the fly. I definitely think that's the direction that the industry is going to head. You nailed it there. Uh, you're always looking for the next bottleneck. Yeah. And when you uncork that bottleneck, what's the next one after that? And But I also tend to think that um, many applications do just fine today without parallelism because there there just isn't enough, either not enough data or not enough processing or not enough uh, uh, something to, to yeah. warrant it. So what would you say like a percentage, 20, 30 percent of the applications out there could benefit from parallelism now, and does that is, is that trend going to continue? Or once we have, do, do you think, once we have the tools, do you think software will be written in such a way that it will rise to meet the the available solution? Like the problem will fit the solution. You know, it's a it's a really it's a fascinating observation you're making there, and I would so let me answer by making a comparison to two other. Um, paradigm shifts that happened previously in the industry. So, you know, we've got this shift from sequential to parallel today. Um, the two previous ones we went through were from co console mode to GUI, and then from sort of uh, desktop to connected Internet applications. Mm. And so you could have made the same arguments at those times, like, hey, my my uh, console mode version of WordStar <laughs> uh, works perfectly fine. I can't imagine wanting anything else in a word processor. Mm. I don't know why you would foist this GUI thing on me. I'm, I'm perfectly happy here. And as we know, we've we've definitely gotten lots of value out of um, you know out of that shift to the GUI, and it unlocked a whole new category of applications. And to be on, you know, not to sound too Darwinian, but those software companies that didn't get on the bandwagon. Uh, quickly enough from the console mode to GUI transition were roadkill. Mm -hmm. and, and I can say that with, um, you know, all the lovingness and security of knowing that I worked for one of those companies <laughs> at the time because, <laughs> you know, Lord knows Borland was late getting the memo on the shift yeah. to Windows. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at the same thing with the Internet, um, 
you know, you could have made the same argument like, hey, how many applications can benefit from connections to the Internet? And now today it's, you know, it's, it's nearly unfathomable that you would have software that didn't in some way interact with the network. Um, but now it's not just the expectation for your computer, it's the expectation for your cable box and your, um, you know, your, your refrigerator. <laughs> you know, those kind of, everything talks to the Internet now. Everything is a connected device. And I think we'll see very much the same thing with parallel computing, where today there are certain classes of applications that people are perfectly happy with, and they'll keep using those. But what I believe is going to happen is there are going to be some new categories of killer applications that emerge. Um, you know, sort of the uh, the Windows, the Windows, the the Apple Macs, the uh, the Netscapes of the parallel era will, will emerge, and they'll set a new bar for expectations. People are going to have new expectations for what interacting with their software means. Um, and, and these things will use parallel hardware to be able to enable those kinds of immersive experiences. And, you know, companies are going to get on that bandwagon and be able to do that. Um, or I think, you know, those applications that, that don't will kind of fade away naturally. That's the, that's the way our business works. But thinking about what happened in the migration to Internet-type apps is that initially we took what we already knew, the Windows app, and we pushed it onto the Internet, and it sort of worked. But it wasn't great. And uh, gradually we evolved skills and techniques and came up with a new class of application entirely. Uh, and I got to think that similar things are going to happen with uh, parallel computing. The really great app for parallel computing hasn't been written yet. Oh, totally. I, I absolutely agree with you. And even back then, we had apps that dabbled in Internet connectivity. Uh, like you could, you know, open up an office dock and uh, off the network or save it to an Internet or print to an Internet printer or something like that. And today we're going to have applications, and even today we do have applications that dabble in parallel computing, but those applications that are just whole hog, part and parcel, uh, you know, parallel computing uh, poster child applications have yet to be written. I kind of think uh, natural language processing and video, real-time video rendering um, are probably some of those places where lots of cores can help. I know that um, I know I know for a fact that uh, that video rendering takes forever, especially if it's of any high quality. Totally. And you know, the more processors you can throw to that, the the better you better better that's going to get. I can I can even see a bottleneck rendering a video. Like if you're rendering a Hollywood movie with eighty cores, it's still going to take a while. Yeah, totally. You know? And and you know, if you look at there's there's a lot of progress that has been made in this space, but the progress has been glacial, so it's hard to see if you just stand there and observe it. But if you kind of take the benefit of, um, you know, this long look backwards, you can see that, you know, take the earliest animated, uh, computer animated movies like Toy Story or whatever. These things were rendered on, um, you know, giant banks so of, uh, you know, clusters of SGI hardware, right? Mm. And then... Compare the the experience you get from viewing one of these early computer animated movies to the experience you get playing, uh, you know, Halo or, or you know, the latest first person shooter or whatever, where it's, uh, you know, textures are realistic, yeah. lighting is realistic, uh, smoke and fog are realistic. You you almost get a better experience, you know, 50 frames per second in real time yeah. on today's hardware than you got with you know 10 years ago or whatever it was, 15 years ago hardware. Um, uh, back then, and so I think that we've already evolved quite a bit. And I think you're right that um, this we're going to keep evolving in this space to the point that you can do just 
wickedly crazy um, video manipulation in terms of being able to take objects in and out of live video yeah. in real time and being able to, to visualize things in real time that we kind of have trouble envisioning today just because the, the processing and, and data, data crunching required is just so intense. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I still think, you know, that's a very known application right now that we just feel like if we threw more horsepower at it, it'd be better. So there's got to be classes of apps out there we're just not thinking oh, of. Of course there are. You know, yeah. Back, stuff that's in the deep background, you know, that that what if my machine was simply watching what I was doing because it had the processing power to do that and starting to learn more about the way I use things and, and reorganizing itself to be more efficient for that. Kind of like Vista. <laughs> kind of like Vista. Um, Except you know, without Vista the long the, pauses. The 1.0 <laughs> of that. Uh, by 3.0 of that particular piece of, of functionality, I think we would we would be pretty solid. This thing um, needs but, more but, you know, it's this notion of, of uh, speculative execution is kind of what right. we call this broad category where um, the computer can speculate, and, and Vista does that. Actually, and Vista's quite good at it in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, things like disk caching have been doing this kind of thing for a long time, yeah. um, where you speculate on what the user's going to want next, and then you, you furnish that up out of a fast cache rather than going to some slow uh, drive or, or memory in order to, to uh, get that. Right. I think we're talking about taking it to the next step. So it's not just about, uh, you know, an instruction pipeline or a data cache or a disk cache. But we're actually pre-crunching. We're we're, we're pre-running software. Uh, the example I think about is when I import images from my from my handheld camera. You know, I plug it in, and there's probably a pattern of things that the computer could easily detect that I like to do. You know, I like to import my images. I like to crop them to a certain size. I like to go through them. I like to remove the red eye. I like to do the color corrections. And you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. take deep observation to learn that I do this pretty much every time I import images, mm. what if I, you know, as I'm importing these images, as I'm doing things, if there's hardware to spare, the computer could be doing these things in the background for me. And then when I call up an image, you know, bam, it's already right there. It's done the work for me. I can just look at it, inspect it, say, yeah, I like it. Go ahead and save that away. And I, I'm, not, I'm never presented with an hourglass cursor. Now, the interesting thing is that that doesn't actually speed, I haven't sped anything up in terms of just raw right. instruction throughput, but my my experience as a user is that, wow, my computer's really fast because I'm using the hardware where it makes sense. And really smart. Look what it did for me, and I didn't even notice it. That's yeah. the kind of stuff where flash memory is really going to help, because if you're sitting there chugging through lists of big pictures and you know reading and writing and stuff, meanwhile, you're trying to like record 24 tracks of audio to a disc with something else, you know, that's going to be a problem. Sure. But that's, this is just another example of when everything's memory, you know, electronic memory, solid state memory, that that kind of stuff can really, really happen. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I'm looking over some of these interesting pieces about the free lunch being over and just the change over to the focus on concurrency and, and the challenges that we're we're running up to against this. Uh, I've, I, this is all Herb Sutter's stuff, right? I'm, have you read it? Oh, yeah, I've definitely read it. I, when I was on the C++ team, I worked pretty closely with Herb, and Herb was really kind of leading the charge. Before a lot of people were worried about this, um, Herb was already beating the drum saying, hey, you know, folks, listen up, this is going to be a problem. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, it's a couple other things that, that are going on in our space um, to, help, to help cope with that is being able to... Um, 
provide the tools that let developers really comprehend what's going on in their code. You know, it's hard enough when you're debugging to debug one thing happening at a time, <laughs> uh, let alone, you know, potentially 80 or 100 things going on at a time. Um, and, you know, if you've got an 80-core machine, it's not like you've got uh, – it's not like it's being time-sliced where you've really only got one thing going on and time-sharing one CPU core. You've actually right. got 80 things happening simultaneously, which is a much different animal. Um, you know, some of the things we're doing – I talked about – parallel extensions to the .NET framework, we're doing something similar uh, for native code. So for C++ applications, you can expect some similar functionality in terms of a, uh, a C++ style programming model. So it's more STL-like. That's good. Kate Gregory will be happy. Yeah, Kate will be very happy with this. I know she will. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, similar kinds of uh, uh, concurrent collections, similar kinds of for-each type iteration. Um, P-Link, of course, isn't going to be available in native code. That's, that, that would be very ambitious um, since it's all managed code technology. Yeah, it's a lot of but, managed code. Um, but there's a there's a core piece of infrastructure that we actually share between native and managed code, which is this piece that schedules tasks. Um, so what we've done is is really change the notion of, of the way the developer thinks about parallelism, or we're trying to anyway. Instead of having to think about, you know, manually doing threads or or creating delegates or callback functions and then throwing them to a to a task pool or rather to a, a to a thread pool to go ahead and, and work on, um, we're trying to find ways for developers to naturally express concurrency uh, in a more declarative way, even within these imperative languages, but to express their concurrency declaratively to say, hey, this is a for loop, but, but do, it, do it like a parallel one. <laughs> right. Or, hey, this is a link query, but hey, do it like a parallel one. Yeah. And so you really don't have to, t- to talk to the computer about the mechanics of how, of how you want that to happen. And, and the mechanics get, uh, we have this scheduling technology called concert, concurrency runtime underneath the hood. And it's going to break up the work into chunks of, of concurrent tasks. And instead of running those uh, in sort of a, a thread pool model, what we do is we have work queues. And so you can think of it like you've got approximately one work queue per per CPU core, and we just throw work on top of these work queues. Every one of these tasks becomes a little bit of work that it's going to execute, and the work queues are really smart, and they know how to steal work from other queues so that if you have a queue where the work starts piling up and another queue goes dry, it can start stealing work from uh, oh, you know the, the one that's piling up, so you get very balanced utilization of, of your cores as you're trying to execute this work um, from a tool standpoint, we're still, you know, we're still in this world where you can write this kind of sort of declarative you know, concurrent code, but then you open up the debugger and it tells you about threads. Yeah. And then right. you're going like, well, wait a minute. I, the word thread does not appear in my code anywhere. <laughs> yeah, Why is I the debugger showing me that? Yeah. I didn't start that. And so one of the things we're trying to do is, is to change, uh, you know, change the vocabulary that the, that the debugger speaks, for example, so that it speaks to you in terms, of, uh, in, in terms of tasks if you're programming with a task model or in terms of chores if you're programming with a chore model, which is something we have on the native code side. And to be able to visualize how the work queues are working and, um, you know, what task is a child or a parent of whichever task because, you know, you can have a, uh, a parallel for loop inside of a parallel for loop. And so you have this sort of natural parent-child relationship between tasks that you might want to capture in the debugger. And so these are things that we're trying to surface in Visual Studio. You know, I, I think of it as uh, allowing the, the developer to debug and diagnose 
their code at the same level of abstraction that they've written the code so that you don't have to keep this mental black box of what the machine is doing in between how you wrote the code and how it's running, but that you can, in fact, speak the same language from soup to nuts. Now, we we shouldn't let you go without asking you about what you guys are doing, if anything, with uh, software transactional memory. Because it's an idea that, uh, um, well, just tell us. Well, we're doing some stuff. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, it's for us, it's an, it's, uh, an incubation effort. Um, we've got some work going on um, on the team within the parallel computing organization. Um, it's still early stage work. The big, you know, and, and just to, to kind of catch everybody up who's listening yeah. on software transactional memory, it's this, um, you know, you kind of take what you know about database transactions, um, you know, in terms of ACID properties and in terms of... Um, in terms of this idea of, hey, I can begin a transaction, I can do some stuff, and then I can commit it or roll it back or retry it or whatever. And you can apply that to uh, to memory as well. So, uh, And in particular, you can make really effective use of this for something like uh, making blocks of code atomic, where you can say, hey, I want this, all, this whole block of code needs to either all happen or all not happen as a transaction. Right. Um, otherwise, you know, I, somehow I'm harming the integrity of, of the system I'm building here. And so software transactional memory allows you to write to those patterns, and in particular, it allows developers to express atomicity um, very naturally, rather than doing all this crazy stuff with, you know, mutexes and critical sections and um, where you're kind of building all this plumbing and then you lose sight of the actual thing you were trying to accomplish because you got all this copper tubing in the way, um, you can see very clearly, hey, this, this is an atomic piece of code. Um, the challenge here is, you know, things like uh, uh, performance, probably one of the bigger challenges. Uh, it, it, this is another one of those technologies where if you run it on a single core, well, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a performance penalty to pay. It's much faster to use a critical section or something like that. Right. Um, but it's technology that scales super well. So if you run it on a uh, you know, more, more parallel machine, you actually get much better performance. This is the same argument we made uh, uh, against relational databases with in-memory or, you know, B-tree stacks. Sure, yeah. Right, where, yeah, you know what, this tree is way faster. And then three people use it and, it's a, and it just blows up in my face. That's right. That's right. And so th- this is another reason why I think it's going to require um, some of these new experiences that sort of re- – that, that uh, in order to enable them, require massive levels of parallelism. Mm. It's going to require that sort of forcing function to bring uh, technologies like transactional memory into the forefront where you, you really have to use it in order to create code that's both uh, performant and scalable, and then at the same time, code that's maintainable by human beings as opposed right. to, you know, druids of, of parallelism. Now, I would imagine that would be a nice little attribute to just put on a function you know, that this is a, a transaction, just like you do with system transactions now. And in fact, that that sort of reminds me of the uh, context-bound object in which uh, was part of COMPLUS, I believe. If you, you made a context-bound object, then everything, then it was completely atomic, but it was at an object level. Oh, interesting. Okay. I actually am not familiar with that, but that's... Uh... You know, Complus is uh, that a has good blast from the past. It's <laughs> a long time ago now. Yeah. Steve, do you think we're going to end up changing languages to uh, to really be successful in the parallel computing space? Will we be programming in a different language when we do this routinely? 
that's a that's a tough one to call. Um, I think it's this is one of those areas where um, you know the 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 demise of of every language has always been greatly exaggerated. Yes, <laughs> there are still people that do everything. Um, I, you know, I will say if I think about it in terms of uh, how much code do we have out there. So really, the the uh, you know the demise of of every programming language has been greatly exaggerated. I think. Um, I think about it in terms of lines of code that are that are out there running. And the fact is we have tons of C and C++ code out there running. We have tons of C Sharp and VB code out there running. And uh, by and large, uh, what, what we've learned is that people generally don't rewrite that stuff. Right. Um, there are tons of Java out there. Um, people largely don't rewrite those investments because it doesn't make financial sense for companies to invest in doing that for the most part. Um, however, what we do find is that people write a lot of new code, and they're more open to new programming languages, new experiences. So I do think that there's room for more programming language players, um, you know, whether it's uh, another kissing cousin to the, to the curly brace family of languages that we have with, uh, you know, C, C++, C Sharp, and Java, or whether it's something, you know, closer to F Sharp or, um, you know, Haskell or whatever, uh, more functionally oriented, that I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, developers seem to like the curly brace languages. Um, there seems to be kind of an affinity there for, for whatever reason. Um, but who knows? Maybe there's going to be some, uh, you know, some tipping point where developers, there become reasons so compelling that they're willing to go to some completely different syntax. Um, it's, it's hard for me to call. I, I, the one thing I do know is that there, there is going to be room for more languages. There's going to be new code that's going to be written with new languages. Um, and the other thing is I, I believe the existing languages will evolve. Uh, we're we're sure. doing some interesting work, for example, um, toying with the managed languages like C Sharp to see, hey, what can we do to make C Sharp safer and less susceptible to the side effects that are inherent in parallelism? Are there certain things we can do with keywords or attributes or whatever that make, uh, that make the code more inherently safe so that if I do something that's unsafe from a parallel standpoint, my code won't even compile? Hmm. Yeah, these would be like attribute extensions to uh, a class declaration or even to just a variable declaration that, that just didn't bring in those concurrency and parallel behaviors. Exactly. I, I, you know, and, and any and all of the above. I think we're kind of, we're, we're thinking about, um, about this really holistically. Like, what are the, the entirety of things that we could be doing? And then once we kind of explore that whole solution space, we'll figure out, okay, well, what are the practical things to do and what time frames? But there are really simple things we could be doing. Like, uh, you know, what if we had, uh, assign once variables or lazy init variables such that when things were assigned or initialized once, uh, they couldn't be written to again? Uh, right. Im- imagine, you know, the, the problems that, that that could avert if uh, in a parallel world where you've constantly got things trying to trample on each other, if it would simply throw an exception when you tried to do that. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, lots of, lots of things we're doing in, in these areas. And also you can pair that with uh, some richer forms of analysis so that the compiler, either statically at compile time or maybe even dynamically as your program runs, can uh, can report these kinds of issues to you and say, oh, wait, hold on, you're doing something that's, you know, did you realize you have a race, a potential data race here? Or did you realize you have a potential deadlock here? And then correcting those things for you before you deploy your software and your customers find the bug for you. 
Yeah, well, diagnosing a race condition alone is challenging. You can't do it. Much less trying to break down a deadlock. So just the whole mechanism of can you see this coming? Can you capture the state that it's in that would cause it? That's just it. You can't do it. You can't do it empirically. You have to just do it theoretically, at least now with the tools that we have. Yeah, I mean, you you actually can, but um, the performance is so miserable that uh, that you can't do it practically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so even if you do have an empirical solution, it may not be a practical one because it's so slow to instrument uh, all the reads and writes. Oh, um, geez, I wouldn't even think of doing that. That's crazy. Yeah, we, <laughs> in the SQL Server world, we call it the profiler effect. Yeah. I've got a deadlock occurring in my database that I can't seem to track down, so I turn on profiler, and it alters the behavior of the database so substantially, I don't have deadlocks anymore. Yeah, but yeah we call those highs and bugs. Highs and bugs. <laughs> yeah, so the act of trying to, so to measure the bug actually makes it impossible to find. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, if you go looking for it, it will disappear on you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's, a great, it's a great challenge. But I, you know, I get the sense that we're going to uh, add all these things to our existing languages that's going to make it sort of a Franken language. That if I'm really serious about doing parallel development, Heisen I have to do all these odd Franken things. bugs and Franken language. The in, Franken language in the yeah. same thirty seconds. Only <laughs> on Dotnet <laughs> Rocks. Yeah. Those sound like breakfast cereals to me. <laughs> Franken bugs. Chocolate flavored Franken language. <laughs> Part of a new breakfast cereal. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a really good point. I, I think, um, you know, I'm not afraid to, to admit that C++ and, and to a large degree suffers from this kind of problem where you have... C++ is a Franken language. <laughs> it was a perfectly harmless proto, you know, high-end ex- assembler language. It's gotten totally out of hand. You people need to stop that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, it's, it's become very difficult. And the problem is, you know, having, uh, ha- you know, working on the C++ team as I used to do, um, the problem becomes the, the combinatorics of options and features and language things that, you know, you have the, this is why our, you know, our, our people that work in QA end up, you know, after a couple of years losing all their hair because the, it's just so huge. The, the matrices blow up so huge in terms of what needs to be tested with what. It's like, well, I just want to add this, you know, new little data type. Well, did you test that with, you know, templates? And did you test that with this? And did you test that with this kind of linking and this kind of calling convention? There's just so much you can do. Um, and that's a risk. That That's absolutely a risk. But I think it's you know, luckily, we have the history of knowing that, well, when you add all these things to a language, it makes bad things happen for you. So we kind of were able to look back and go, okay, well, you know, how did how did C++ evolve this way? And yes, it's very powerful, but also, yes, it's very hard to use, and it's very um, difficult to add new features because of this, you know, massive surface area that it covers. Um, going forward, we're, we're certainly going to take... Um, you know, to take history under advisement, I guess, um, and be really careful. Um, that's why you see, for example, parallel extensions to the .NET framework. We're not going crazy adding a bunch of new uh, keywords to the C-sharp language. Right. Um, we're trying to implement it very judiciously as, um, uh, you know, as lambdas, because you can make it feel integrated without actually polluting the language. And then things that work really well that we think, yeah, okay, that should be part of the language. Over time, that can happen if it makes sense. But we don't have to do those things out of the gate. Well, Steve, I'm afraid our time elasticity has is... Uh... Elasticity? 
<laughs> we got Comnenotronics, <laughs> Franken language, and elasticity. I had to say something. This place is killing me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's come to an end, and uh, it's been a great show. Very good talking to you, Steve Teixeira. And keep up the great work, man. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 